doing on Sunday morning called Running with Champions. And this morning we look at an unlikely champion, Rahab the harlot. In verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. Recently, I had a high school reunion. Um, I was unable to attend this one. It was my five-year high school reunion. (laughs) What are you laughing at? No, actually, it was my 20-year high school reunion. And uh, I didn't go. I was over in Africa. But um, yesterday, I was looking through my annual What a gas to look through those things. You know, first of all, you look at yourself and you go, I look like that. And in the back of the annual, there's a little section. Best dressed, most spirited, most scholastic, most likely to succeed. Remember that section? I was in none of those, by the way. But I think God has his own little section, as I read the Bible, called most unlikely to succeed. And it seems that for some reason, the Lord just looks for people that are most unlikely to succeed, and He makes them succeed. As I read the Scriptures, I think, where did God get these guys? Like Jacob, classic manipulator, the Dennis the Menace of the Old Testament, or the Eddie Haskell of the Old Testament, depending on your frame of reference, if you remember these shows or not. People like Jonah, who instead of saying, Yes, sir, Lord, wherever you want me to go, he goes the opposite direction. People like Peter, Mr. Sandal in the Mouth, never knew what to say, he just kind of talked. It's humorous, actually, as I look at how Jesus molded his disciples together and who he picked for his team. On the same team of disciples, he took a Jewish zealot, the kind that hates tax collectors, and he puts them together with Matthew, who was a tax collector, all on the same team. But that's the style and the method of the Bible. In verse 31, we come to Rahab the harlot. It's funny that also she would be listed in this hall of faith. Her name literally means fierceness or insolence. And... uh, The reason it sticks out to me is that if you read Hebrews 11 and you come to Abraham and Joseph and Abel and Enoch and Joshua, you kind of get stumbled when you read verse 31. Rahab? You know, by faith, Rahab. Those words don't seem to fit together. It seemed like when you have a harlot, you might say, by lust, Rahab the harlot, or by greed, Rahab the harlot, but by faith, Faith and harlot just don't seem to go together in our minds. We call that an oxymoron. These are words that you put them together and they just don't seem to fit together. Sort of like airplane food. They just have never seemed to fit together in my mind. There's others like military intelligence. Now that's just a joke. If you're in the military, I apologize. The truth is God doesn't look for... Ability. He looks for availability. God never calls calls people who are qualified, but He qualifies people that He calls. He takes them as they are, and He molds them. And as we go through the story this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews 11 and Joshua chapter 2. So you might want to just turn to Joshua 2 or put a marker there as we get into it. But as uh, we look at it this morning, there's uh, four things that strike me about her story. 
First of all, the story of Rahab is a story of God's grace. Rahab, as an example of faith, would be as shocking to people back then as, say, using Ted Bundy as an example of faith to people today. The notorious rapist and killer who, before he died, gave his life to Jesus Christ. But in some people's minds, the thought of a guy like Ted Bundy now residing in heaven is a shock to people because by faith he received Jesus Christ. But the story of Rahab shows us that nobody is outside of the scope of God's mercy and grace. Nobody is too bad to be saved. An alcoholic, a thief, a drug user never can exhaust the mercy and the grace of God. That's what's so beautiful about the gospel. Rahab is simply a testimony to that fact. Do you remember when Jesus went to Matthew's house after he called him? It was a farewell feast. Jesus was inside with the guests. The Pharisees walked by, peeked their head inside the door, saw Jesus hanging out with everybody, and said to the disciples, Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overheard it, or he heard their thought processes went to the Pharisees and he said, Listen, those that are well do not need a physician, only those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. Jesus said, I came to call sinners unto repentance. Jesus came to call sinners. Rahab is in the perfect place as an object of God's grace. The love of God is greater far than ink or pen could ever tell. It stretches to the farthest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. And that's the story of Rahab. Let's be honest. Every one of us is a sinner before God. It's just that we are the ones that grade on a curve, not God. We have categories of sin. We have felonies and misdemeanors. We have mortal and venial, as some like to categorize it. Well, this isn't as bad. Oh, that's really bad. As if God sees the difference. Listen, sin is sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Rahab, Abraham, Peter, all of these people have fallen short of God's glory. And um, we also, also ought to note that every human being has the capacity to live the worst possible life as well as live the best possible life. We are capable of the worst possible atrocities. Albert Einstein, after coming up with that marvelous technology of the atom. When the atom bomb was finally developed, he was worried and he addressed a group in 1948 with these words. The true problem lies in the hearts and in the thoughts of men. It is not a physical but an ethical problem. What terrifies me is not the explosive force of the atom bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart. Every one of us is in the same category before God as Rahab. You might say, well, well, I'm better than many people. I'm nicer than many people. I'm sweeter than many people. Of course, you're a lot humbler than many people too, right? (laughs) You might be the kind that would sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like You. Instead of a wretch like me, remember in the New Testament, there's the story of the Pharisee who goes to the temple And he prays with his hands raised up and his head up. And everybody can see him. Everybody can hear him. He's drawing attention to himself. He wants to make sure everybody looks at him. 
And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially like that rotten, filthy tax collector over there. I fast, I give my money, I do this, I don't do this. But the tax collector just bowed his head and he said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as he beat his breast. Jesus said, That repentant, humble man went away justified, whereas the Pharisee, who thought himself to be better than others, did not leave justified. Some may be here this morning who are as guilty as Rahab, but nobody knows it. Because Jesus said it's not only the committing of adultery. He said if anybody looks to lust after someone in his heart, he has committed adultery already. Sin begins in the heart. Her action was manifest. But you can still be as guilty of the same kinds of things by entertaining thought processes in the heart of man. And so be careful. To stand and condemn people is always dangerous. Because when you point the finger at others, you have three pointing back at you. You could say, Rahab, what's she doing in this list of faith? Hey, you know what? If you're a faithful man or a woman, you would be included in this list, and it's only by God's grace. See, God is in the business of taking ruined lives and restoring them. That's your testimony, right? If you were to stand up, time permitted, and we could go through this room, and you could say how you came to Christ and give us your background, you would have a testimony of the grace of God, how He took a beat-up, wrecked life, put His grace upon it, changed it, and sent you out to be his emissary. That's the story of the gospel. In England, there is a factory that produces the finest stationery in the world. A man took a tour of that factory, and as he was walking through the hallways with all of the equipment at his side, he said, what is the secret to such fine stationery, such fine product in this paper? They showed him a pile of old rags, and they said, this is our secret. The content and the amount of content of these rags in the paper determines the quality of the paper. He said, you're kidding. It's these rags that make it so good? He said, that's right. When he arrived home, about a week later, a package came for him from this paper factory with his initials embossed on it and a simple note at the top of the paper that said, dirty rags transformed. That was their secret. Well, that's God's secret. God doesn't look around humanity to find people. Oh, perfect gem. He takes people who are beat up. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth, the Bible says, that God can show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are turned toward Him, those who are available for God to use. By the way, only God can take a life like Rahab's, like yours, like mine, and change it. Only God has the power to take a broken life and so totally transform that life that that person can be said, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. Therapy can't do it. Getting in touch with your inner child won't do it. Contemplating on a mantra or your navel won't do it. Being one with nature won't change you. Putting bumper stickers that say, one people, one planet, please, won't do it. Only God can change the heart of a man or a woman. As one person wrote, and I agree with, let a man go to a psychiatrist, he'll become an adjusted sinner. Let a man go to a doctor, he'll become a healthy sinner. Let a man achieve great wealth, he'll become a wealthy sinner. Let him join a church, sign a card, and turn over a new leaf, and he'll just become a religious sinner. But let him go in sincere repentance and faith to the foot of Calvary's cross, 
and he will become a forgiven sinner. That's really the issue, isn't it? God takes our life, forgives us. It's a story of God's grace. You know that Paul the Apostle, the great rabbi of Judaism, saw that he was a sinner and saw that he needed God's grace to transform him. He wrote to Timothy and he said, I was formerly a blasphemer, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. God didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When that Sunday school teacher asked her class, what must men do to be saved? The little boy exclaimed, they must sin. Actually, he was accurate. Sinners recognize when they're really in touch with who they are that they need a Savior. And then at that point, they will call upon the grace of God for God to change and transform their life. And I would say, in that case, Rahab qualifies, wouldn't you? Rahab the harlot, placed here as a heroine of faith. My father used to say, well, son, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. And I hadn't read the Bible until I came, became a Christian at age 18 and I was able to go to my father every time he says that. And I said, Dad, it's not there. No, it doesn't say that. But there's plenty of scriptures that say God helps the helpless or attest to that fact. God didn't help people who help themselves. He helps people who can't help themselves. The disciples looked at Jesus and he's, they said, Who then can be saved? Jesus said, With men it's impossible. But with God all things are possible. You can't be saved on your own. But God can do it. God takes basket cases and restores them. When we first went into this building some years back, I remember uh, when we got the buzz that this building was for sale, I took my board of directors in, and uh, some of you remember what it looked like. When we first walked in, and you could smell beer all over the place, it was in the astroturf that was here on the floor because of all the dances and parties and so forth. Walked in this place and I thought, this would be awesome. This would be great. We could take it and we could fix it up, just sort of like a couple does a fixer-upper home. You should have seen the looks on the faces of some of those board members. (laughs) This? Oh, there's no heating. There's no air conditioning. This won't work. Oh, I don't know. God looks at people, people like Rahab, People that we would say, I don't know about that person. I don't know if there's really any hope. God says, oh, that's exactly right. Hopeless, huh? Not for me. And God takes them and changes them. So it's a story of grace. Secondly, I know it sounds obvious, but I want to focus on this. It's a story of a woman. Not all of the examples of faith in this chapter are men. There are a few women. We have Sarah mentioned. We have... Moses' mother sort of mentioned in verse 23 when we have the parents of Moses. In verse 35, women receive their dead raised to life again. Examples of faith are not all men. There are women. There's an old hymn of the church, Faith of Our Fathers. We ought to sing Faith of Our Mothers. There's plenty of godly women who are great examples of faith. Timothy had, for instance, a mother and a grandmother who loved the Lord. And when Paul wrote his epistle to Timothy, he mentioned mama and grandma, not dad and grandpa. Perhaps they had no spiritual faith. But Paul did say, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is also in you. Besides that, we have other examples of women in the Scripture. Deborah, 
in the Old Testament was called a judge of Israel. The only woman who was called a judge in Israel. It says the children of Israel used to come and meet Deborah as she sat under that tree in northern Israel. She was a prophetess of the Lord. She was a spokesman for God. She was called a mother in Israel. And she had more guts than the general and the commander of the army, Barak. When the enemy was coming into Israel, Deborah said, Hey, Barak, go attack Jabin. Otherwise, we're going to be dead meat. And Barak said, Okay, I'll go. I'll be valiant if you go with me. What? Sounds like a wimp. This great general won't go to battle unless Deborah, this woman in Israel, goes with him. But she had more guts and she proved to be a great leader, a valiant woman of God. There are other examples. Hannah is a great example of a mother who nurtures her children. She was barren. She prayed unto the Lord. God gave her Samuel. She dedicated Samuel to the Lord and weaned him and brought him up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. There's the story of Ruth, the Moabitess, who clung to Israel's God and becomes a grandmother of King David. There are some people who think that God is some kind of a male chauvinist. They read the Bible and they read a couple of little texts in the New Testament and they say, see, God's against women. No, God has always elevated the place of woman. Yeah, but doesn't the Bible say that wives should submit to their husbands as unto the Lord? In fact, in many modern weddings... Brides are more and more asking to remove the word submit. It's too old-fashioned. Don't say it. Well, just because that's God's order, it doesn't mean that the husband is any better or any smarter. I hear all the women saying amen all of a sudden to that one. That's right. Nudging. See? It's like one husband said, Well, husband may be the head of the home, but my wife is the neck that moves the head. Hey, well, you ought to thank God for her then. You ought to thank God that God has given you a woman who has sense. It's a beautiful combination in the home. Paul said, woman is the glory of the man. And as we read the New Testament, we see that women were vitally important to the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus went out of his way to meet a woman at the well of Samaria, another woman of ill repute like Rahab. It shocked the disciples. But they ministered unto Jesus. And speaking of the importance of the role of a woman, Solomon said, a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So, you might be a woman this morning who's another Deborah, a valiant woman who God will raise up as some kind of a leader. Or you might be like Hannah, a mom, a housewife. You ought to thank God for whatever role you're in. Even if you're at home and you're a housewife, think, what good could I do? Hey, you could raise another Timothy up to make a great impact in this world. I love that plaque that was over the kitchen sink that said, Divine service rendered here three times daily. She saw her ministry to her family as her ministry unto the Lord. Thirdly, this is a story of faith. That's why it's included in this chapter on faith. It says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now the emphasis in this verse is on saving faith. And in a minute, I'm going to have you look at Joshua chapter 2. In fact, let's just turn back there. Joshua chapter 2. We see that her faith that is spoken of was faith in the midst of judgment. You know, there's a lot of people today who say, well, I believe I have faith 
And it's true, every human being has some kind of faith, but not all faith is saving faith. Saving faith is not faith in yourself. Rahab didn't look in the mirror, as some psychologists would have told her today, and say, you're wonderful, you're awesome, I believe in you. You're special to raise her self-esteem. That's sort of popular today. There was an ad in Psychology Today recently that said, I love me. I am not conceited. I'm just a good friend to myself. And I like to do whatever makes me feel good. Well, infants think like that. That's not maturity. It's not saving faith. Neither is saving faith just faith in a force or a higher power or faith in the power of faith. The general idea today is that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something very strongly. Whatever suits you, that's fine. Well, that's not saving faith. Saving faith, to be saving, has to have the right object. She believed in the right God, not just any kind of a God. It's not enough to believe in a higher power or a force or the Easter Bunny. It has to be the right one, the right God. So we look in uh, Joshua chapter 2, and we'll see what faith involves. Verse 1, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go and view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the country of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where they went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly, for you might overtake them. But she brought them up to the roof and had hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they laid down, they came to them, or she came to them on the roof. Now notice in verse 9 through 11 that saving faith involves the mind, first of all. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on all of us and the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. First of all, she knew certain things were true and she believed them. Faith involves the mind. She knew that the God of Israel was the true God. She knew the Israelites were the people of God. She knew about the Red Sea episode some 40 years before. She knew that God did that. She also knew that she was a condemned woman living in a condemned city and the only hope for her was to cast herself on the mercy of God. She knew that. Faith involves the mind. How did you come to Jesus Christ? Well, somehow a message was presented to you. Somebody talked to you. 
You read it in a book. You heard it in a message. You saw it on television. However the gospel came across, it was presented and your mind, which is often in the scripture synonymous with the heart. The heart is never opposed to the mind. It's always opposed to the hypocrisy of a life. But you thought about it. Maybe you argued with it. You thought about your life. That's the first step. In 1973, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I saw Billy Graham on television, he was presenting the gospel. I remember arguing with him. That's not right. I don't believe that. And I was thinking about it. And then finally, I, when I did my business with God, I said, now, God, why do you want my life? It's not a good deal for you. Why would you give your son for my life? seems like you're getting a rotten deal, but it seems like I'm getting a good deal and I would be an idiot to pass it up. I thought about it first. Faith involves the mind. Secondly, faith involves the emotions. There's a certain amount of conviction that knowing certain things produces. In verse 11, once again, notice, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone. She felt uneasy. She knew that, hey, if Og and Sihon and the Egyptians are all destroyed and they're coming our way, that's not a pretty picture. We're next. Judgment is inevitable. And that caused a healthy fear to come over her. Now, I've heard people say, well, fear isn't the best reason to get a person to Christ. Well, maybe not. But you know, it's better than no reason. I'd rather see a person be scared into heaven than not go to heaven at all. Well, we better not share with them then until they feel better about it. No. Today's the day of salvation. Whether you do it just because you're lonely and you want a friend or you feel your sin and you need forgiveness or you sense the judgment of God that is impending, whatever motivation, you want to get there. At least she was motivated. Whenever truth is presented and the Holy Spirit works with it, as it goes into the mind it produces generally a response in the soul or the emotions of a person. A person starts feeling like, hmm, I'm a little uneasy or that's what I need. And it's important to be in touch with that sense of conviction because you can turn that off too. You can turn that feeling off and the Bible speaks about those who are beyond feeling where they hear the message but their heart is so calloused it just bounces right off. Oh, how dangerous when conviction isn't there like it was with Rahab. But it's interesting. Rahab said, our hearts melted. In other words, it was not just hers, but it produced a conviction in all of the inhabitants of Jericho. Yet, Rahab and her family were the only ones that were saved. The rest hardened their hearts. The same sun that melts the wax bakes the clay. The truth of God will produce two different reactions depending on the condition of the heart. If your heart is softened before God, as God breaks through and you say, okay, yes, I respond to that, you'll melt. You can say, no, even though I feel this, even though I know this, no. And the more and more you do it, you can become like baked clay hardened to the truth, hardened against the truth. Notice next that faith involves the will. In verse 12, now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token 
Spare my father and my mother and my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and we will deal truly with you. She openly confessed her guilt and asked for mercy. This is what I know. This is what we felt now. Therefore, please do this. She cast herself upon God's mercy. She knew with her mind. She felt with her soul. She confessed with her mouth. Does that sound like the New Testament? Sure it does. Remember Romans chapter 10, the apostle says, With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So saving faith involves the mind, the emotions, the will. But this brings us to our fourth and final point. This is a story of action. And true faith will always involve action. True grace will always involve action. It says in verse 31 of our text, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. She did more than know. She did more than feel. She did more than speak. She did something. Not to be saved, but her doing something showed that she was saved. That her life had been changed. She hid the spies risking her own life. She let them down the wall by means of a rope. She acknowledged the need that she had and her family, so she shared her faith with her family. There were plenty of things that evidenced her faith in Jesus Christ. The principle is obvious. In James chapter 2, in fact, uh, we're so close to James chapter 2, let's just turn, turn right from Hebrews 11 a few pages. And we see that uh, Abraham and Rahab are used as an illustration again. James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and that by works faith was made complete? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. The idea is that she was justified by her faith, but you can never separate godly works from faith. True faith produces action or produces works. That old song that says, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is a haunting question. Would there? If you were on trial, this person is accused of being a Christian, and the judge says, prove it. Would you say, oh, hey, that's easy. Let anyone bring an allegation against me. There's enough evidence to prove it. John, when he wrote his epistle, said, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Loving God is not an emotional goosebump. When a person comes by faith involving the mind, the emotions, the will, it is followed by action. You're not saved by works. She didn't work for her salvation. She was justified and works were a part of that. They followed through. 
and demonstrated that she was saved by faith. If someone comes up to you with um, tennis shorts, tennis shoes, tennis racket in their hand, and a tennis book in their other hand, and they say, I am a tennis player, you'd probably believe them. But does having a racket, the right clothes, and the right book make you a tennis player? What makes you a tennis player? Playing tennis. Oh, but what if that person memorized several sections of that book and he had little sections underlined with yellow and wrote little notes next to them? It wouldn't make him a tennis player unless those things were operating in his life. And so Jesus said, you will know every tree by its fruit. Rahab the harlot was Rahab the changed harlot as proved by what she did. So we see that faith and works always go together. It's a story of grace. It's a story of a woman. It's a story of faith. It's a story of action. Faith that was motivational, that produced action. You might look at the Christian life like a boat with two oars. One of the oars is marked faith. The other oar is marked works. If you try to row with just one of the oars, you'll go in circles. You won't go forward. Try to row with the other oar, you'll go in circles. But you row with both of them, faith and works, and you will go ahead. You will make progress. Faith without works is dead, but you know what? Works without faith is dead too. If a person truly believes, there'll be evidence all over the place. There was once a man who was witnessing to his friend. This man was a Christian, and he was asking his friend, about his eternal state, his salvation. And his friend's favorite passage, favorite example, or I should say favorite excuse, was the thief on the cross. His friend said, how do you know that you're a Christian? I mean, you say that you are, but is there anything in your life that shows it? He'd always go back to the thief on the cross when his friend would say, well, do you fellowship anywhere? Do you go to church? Are you in fellowship with God's people? No, I'm not, he said. But the dying thief on the cross, he never went to church. He did. He went to heaven. I said, all right. Well, have you ever been baptized to identify with Jesus Christ? No. But the dying thief on the cross, he was never baptized. He was admitted to heaven. Well, do you give your money to help out God's work? No. Dying thief on the cross, he never gave any money to help out in God's work. He went to heaven. Well, do you help any? I mean, do you do anything? And he went on, dying thief on the cross. Finally, his friend said, I see that the only difference between you and the dying thief on the cross is he was a dying thief, you're a living thief. If a heart has been touched, a life will be changed. A harlot, so unlikely, so radically changed and restored that she wanted to help these men and she brought testimony even to her family that she was saved. I am convinced that Rahab is a rebuke to this generation. Because Rahab had so little information, and yet she believed so greatly. We have the entire Bible. We have Christian radio programs, television programs, bookstores, churches, and yet there are still many people after having so much information, so many resources, don't have the kind of faith that Rahab exhibited before Jericho fell in judgment. Rahab proves that nobody is too bad to be saved. You can never be too bad, but you can be too late. 
There are many people who have put it off and put it off and put it off, only to find that only God knows when he would take them. And it was too late. That's why the Bible puts salvation in the present tense. Today is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Come as you are, and he will change you. He loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. It's been said there will be three surprises in heaven. Number one, who made it. We'll see Rahab. Number two, who didn't make it. And number three, that you and I made it. Rahab, a heroine of faith. A harlot turned heroine of faith. Bob McAllister wrote an article for Prison Fellowship about an experience he had in a prison. This is what he said. The condemned man sat on the edge of his bed, his freshly shaven head and right leg glistening with a thin coat of conducting gel to aid the transmission of 2,000 volts of electricity through his body. Paps, he told me, the only thing I ever wanted was a home. Now I'm about to get one. Not more than a few minutes later, on April 27, 1980, Ronald Rusty Woomer, 35 years old, killer of four innocent people in South Carolina, died in the electric chair. The memories of his last days and seconds with a man who was as close as a son to me still ache like fresh wounds. I first met Rusty in October 1985 on cell block number two, better known as Death Row, at the Correctional Institution of Columbia, South Carolina. As I walked up to his cell, I saw a light, and then I saw something that I will never forget. His face, the color of chalk, he was sitting on the floor, motionless. Roaches covered the walls and the floor, but what froze my soul were the roaches crawling on the man. His lap, his shoulders. He was in such despair that he didn't even flick them off. I sat down on the floor and tried to talk to him, but he couldn't talk back. He just stared. It was a perfect picture of sin. Filthy, degrading, hopeless. In vain, I tried to rouse a response, frustrated and scared. I prayed aloud that God would cut through the evil in the cell and pierce the heart of its inhabitant. Rusty, just say the word Jesus. I pleaded with him. With much effort, he whispered, Jesus. Just look at you, I gently chided. Your cell is filthy and so are you. The roaches have taken over and you're spiritually a dead man. Jesus can give you something better. I asked Rusty if he wanted to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Through the tears, he nodded. And then he prayed, Jesus, I heard a lot of people. There ain't no way I deserve you to hear me. But I'm tired and I'm sick. I'm lonely. My mom is dead and she's in heaven with you. I never got to tell her goodbye. Please, please forgive me, Jesus, for everything I've done. I don't know much about you, but I'm willing to learn. And I thank you for listening to me. I went back to see him the following Monday. His cell was spotless. The walls were scrubbed, the bed was made, and the scent of disinfectant hung in the air. Bob, how do you like it? exclaimed a smiling, energized Rusty. I spent all weekend cleaning out my cell because I figured that's what Jesus would want me to do. Rusty, I said, took you all weekend to clean out your cell, but it only took Jesus an instant to clean out your life. As his appeals were turned down and the execution became a certainty, Rusty developed a simple picture of the hereafter. 
He said, when I get to heaven, Jesus and Mama and I are all going to be together, and my Mama and I are going fishing. Well, on Thursday afternoon, nine hours before Rusty was to die, his family were saying their final farewells. Rusty prayed, My precious Lord, I am not crying because I feel bad, but because I'm happy. I'm going to be with you. And you've done everything for me far beyond what I ever deserve. I ask you to watch over my family, to take the hurt and sadness from their hearts. I pray that all this pain and suffering will be gone, and I just praise you with all my heart. When Rusty's family left, he and I were alone. The Holy Spirit was doing his final work in Rusty's life and a further work in mine. As we sat there, the peace of God washed over us both, a peace that I cannot begin to describe. In that darkened, quiet cell, God replaced the burdens and fears with the majestic assurance that Rusty would break away from the body of sin and be whisked away into heaven. I don't think I'll ever be the same. I followed Rusty to the death chamber at 12.55 a.m., And my final words to him were, Rusty, look to Jesus. As he was strapped in the chair, I heard his last words. I'm sorry. I claim Jesus Christ as my Savior. My only wish is that everyone in the world could feel the love that I have felt for him. Rusty's body died at 1.05 a.m., but I'm convinced that he and his mama are fishing in heavenly streams. Only God can do that. Only God can take a guy stone-faced with roaches on him, make him get up and clean his cell, and be filled with joy and thankfulness for God's forgiveness. Nothing else can do it. Rahab's story is a story of the gospel, a story of grace, a story of a woman who trusted God, a story of faith, saving faith, one that produced action. This morning, if you haven't made peace with God, if your life is something you've struggled with, but it's still not changed, then come to Him. There's no hope outside of Him. The walls will come down one day, and only those who cling to Him will be saved. Father, how grateful we are for the heroes of faith, and especially this morning, this great woman of faith, who in the midst of all the inhabitants of Jericho dared to believe in You, knowing the inevitable consequences of coming judgment. Hers is a story of safety, a story of love and salvation. Even as the gospel story is still for us a story of love and salvation. I pray, Father, with the great amount of light and knowledge and information that we have. Since Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required, that we would live in the light of that knowledge, lives surrendered to you, clinging to you, believing in you, And I pray, Father, that you transform even more lives this morning as commitments are made to the Savior.